This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is What Happens If with Daniel and Jan on Joy. Pretty sure I'm recording. I'm pretty sure we're on air. I'm pretty sure this is happening on what happens if on joy. Oh boy. Okay, look. It's not a big deal, but I'm here on my own in a studio. It's just me and the air conditioner. Daniel's gone. Let's just let that sit for a minute because it's going to change the show. Let's face it. It's going to change the show. One of the big things about this medium is that you've got the back and forth between people. You've got the dynamic, dynamic people, relationships. What happens if? Joy 94.9, Tuesdays, this is it. But no Daniel. Just me, just me, just me and my brain and you lucky people, you lucky, 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 lucky ducks. I'm going to call you lucky ducks. Lucky ducks of Melbourne, the lucky ducks of Melbourne. And well, unless you're listening online or unless you're listening to the podcast, if you're not listening to the podcast, go and download the podcast or you can go to at what happens if joy, I think. Daniel's not here to make fun of the fact that we don't keep up that Instagram, but I can do it. We don't keep up the Instagram. (laughs) Uh, See, it's really different now, now that it's me laughing in a room. That's a different thing. There was a moment in my life where I looked in the mirror, told a story out loud, and then laughed at it. And then there was a silence. And then I laughed again. If that ever happens to you, maybe you should try radio. Maybe you should try a solo radio show. So, yeah, I'm on my own. And um, this week on What Happens If, um, I decided that I would do a bit of a follow-up. A follow-up ep. Or a follow-up ep. Where I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into what happens if I become a carer because you would have remembered from last week because you're all regulars because you're listening to the podcast or because you're listening live on Joy 94.9 that um, last week we talked to Daniel and I when he was still here talked to our mothers and our mothers have both had um, strong lived experience with dementia in our families with caring for people with dementia with um, lived experience with dealing with um Things like VCAT and the Office of the Public Advocate and um, getting advice on dementia. And so it was really wonderful to hear from them firsthand accounts about what that's like. What's the practicality of being a carer? So because it's felt, it fell so squarely on the issue of dementia in terms of the specific type of care required for um, 
our grandparents, my grandmother and Daniel's poppy, um, uh, I thought I'd dig a little bit deeper into dementia. So this week it's what happens if we follow up on dementia? So joining me for a bit of a philosophical discussion about care and perhaps zero, zeroing in on dementia. And, you know, I, I think more broadly than that, uh, for me, it's about disabilities that sort of render an individual to be not sound of mind. I remember that moment when my grandmother, when it was determined officially that she was not sound of mind and other people had to start taking on the responsibility of representing her wishes, of doing their best possible job to represent her wishes. And I think that that would be a great discussion to have with a philosopher. So you know what? I just reached out, reached out to Monarch University. I said, hey, Dr. Linda Barclay, what's up? And um, she seemed keen on it. So Dr. Linda Barclay is a political philosopher in the philosophy department at Monash University. She's written extensively on the topic of philosophy and disability, healthcare, disability care, dignity and, and uh, medical ethics. And I could go on. It really was a very long list. And I apologize in advance, Dr. Barclay, but I just didn't get through it all. Um, She's going to come in. Uh, she did write a book called Disability with Dignity um, and uh, so many publications. It's not funny. Um, so I... Th- I think that this idea is the thing that seems to me to be the key factor when it comes to the broader complications around caring for someone with dementia. The the responsibility of decision-making is passed on. The baton is kind of passed on to someone who is sound of mind to try and... I I can find no better way than to say to... They sort of have to fabricate or as accurately as they can decide what the individual would would have wanted... Were they still sound of mind? Were they still able to make their own decisions? So think about that task for a minute. Think about how do you know what you want from moment to moment? Think about all the factors involved in every thought. Do you even know your thoughts and opinions are are coming before they get there? And now imagine someone says to you, hey, could you make every decision ever for me and do it exactly how I want it from now on? I mean, that's a mammoth task. And it's mammoth, I think, psychologically and and philosophically. The implications for carers, for institutions, for providers are are far-reaching. And it's fairly likely that all this is going to touch you in in some way uh, as you move forward in your life or touch someone who you love in your life, as it has for Dan and I and our mothers and our um, our extended families. It's, it's, It's deeply embedded in my life right now. Um, It's... It's affecting it a lot. I mean, even in the last two days, um, my family has fought, I mean, just above and beyond for what we feel are the wishes of my grandmother. There's a situation where we are attempting to move her from her current nursing home to another nursing home, a nursing home that is so much closer to her husband of 60 years. It's not funny. She lives in Brighton. She, she, her husband lives in Brighton. She's in Footscray. We want to move her to Brighton. And there's a dispute in the family, and that is regretful. But the amount of work involved in trying to accomplish this simple task when the power of the family is is out of its own hands, when it gets passed on to uh, uh, bodies like the OPA or, or VCAT, when these third parties become involved, things can become really difficult. So there's a lot to think about and a lot to consider before we even get there. If you have an inkling, if you have any kind of an inkling that there's going to be some disagreement down the line, you need to plan for it 
right now. Right, right now. In fact, stop listening and start doing it. Um, also joining me today is um, Marie McCabe. She is the CEO from Dementia Australia. Now, she's somewhere in the country. I, I don't know where. I think she's in another state. And so she's going to be joining me on the old telephone for the chat. And um, again, um, I'm really looking forward to, to um, speaking with Marie about, um, about dementia and about um, her work in that space and about Dementia Australia's work in that space. All righty, let's just get into it. I'm not going to talk your ear off anymore. You know, just uh, take a seat. Uh, or just stand. Like, either way, I'm fine. Sometimes sitting's bad for my back, so I stand. Um, but this is Joy on 94.9. This is Joy 94.9. This is What Happens If. Well done, Jan. You're listening to What Happens If on Joy 94.9. I have on the line with me now CEO of Dementia Australia, Marie McCabe. Thank you so much for joining us, Marie. Oh, you're welcome, Jan. Thank you very much, too. Now, I understand you're not in our fair state of Victoria at the moment. I'm sorry, could you just repeat that? Are, are you are you out of state at the moment? Are you out of Victoria? Yes, I am. I'm actually in Canberra at the moment. What's going on there? Busy? Uh, yeah, I was at a Cognitive Decline Partnership, partnership Centre conference here and uh, they were sharing about some of the research that's come out of the projects and activities that they've been doing. Excellent. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, for the listeners who perhaps aren't aware of the work of Dementia Australia, I know that it's something that I've become interested in because as the listeners who are de- highly devoted to our program here, um, would have been, would have heard last week, I have a grandmother who has severe dementia and it's something that's heavily involved in our lives. And so it felt like uh, a good idea to, um, speak with you about it and, and share that knowledge out. So can you give us just a, a brief rundown of how you came, how you came to work with Dementia Australia and what it is that you do there? Um, my background is actually my most of my career background was in mental health, and then um, then in aged care for a few years, and then I was appointed to the role of uh, CEO of, Demi- of Alzheimer's Australia Vic, and that was about seven years ago. And at the time, Jan, my dad had just passed away from dementia, so it was a very uh, it was a perfect fit. The timing was great. My background in mental health and in aged care really and my personal experience equipped me very well to step into that role and I had a personal passion, a very a professional passion and I was very committed to making a difference in the area. Yeah, wonderful. That does sound like a, a good marriage of um, lived experience and professional experience. If you could just um, maybe move around the room a little bit, getting a little bit of a crackle on the line, but that's okay. We'll we'll press on. Um, okay. I'm, I was wondering, um, finding out that you've had that lived experience, uh, last week, Daniel and I, who um, is now gone off to another job, he was my co-host, um, <laughs> I'm not bitter, um, uh, he, we both spoke about, um, we both spoke with our mothers, and um, it, I found it very interesting that the two of them, without having spoken to each other, essentially said the exact same thing, which was that in the care of their parents, all they could do was in each moment try and improve the outlook, try and improve the quality of life for their mother in my mother's case, so my grandmother, and in um, yeah. uh, Robin, which is Daniel's mum, in her father's case. Um, I found that very interesting. Can you perhaps... If, if you wouldn't mind speaking about your personal experience with your family member or loved one yeah. who had dementia? 
Well, Dad had dementia with Lewy bodies, which is a type of dementia that people living with Parkinson's disease can get. So memory wasn't the first thing that we noticed about Dad. In fact, what we noticed was that all of a sudden he became very apathetic and he went from being a man who was incredibly busy and active to doing nothing. And I kept thinking, why all of a sudden has he just gotten lazy? And I was talking to my mum about it and Dad, he, Dad was undergoing some tests and they first diagnosed him with chronic fatigue syndrome, then with depression and finally with dementia. Mm. And it was actually his dementia all along. And the other things that we started to notice was that he would start saying things that were completely inconsistent with how he had previously been. He started to swear a lot at home. Now, I knew my father could swear. Mm. <laughs> he worked on the land. I had heard him out in the paddocks. So I'd heard him right swear, but he would never swear at home. And that was one of the things that we noticed. And then all of a sudden he started being a bit disinhibited in his conversation, saying things that he would never have said to people. And it was kind of a progression over a period of time where we started to notice all of these different things. And he it became more and more progressive and he started to decline. And then he started to be, he lost the ability to do some of the things that he would always do. And, you know, simple things like figuring out, you know, using the telephone, for example, and he just avoided it. Now, Dad never liked talking on the telephone, but we actually didn't realise that he'd forgotten how to use it. And so eventually when he got a diagnosis of dementia, it all made sense. And my mum was protecting him as well, so she was not telling us what exactly was happening with Dad. Mm. So when we'd visit, she would say, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. And then we'd notice things and I'd say, you know, Mum, what's going on with Dad? You know, and mm. she'd say, oh, look, he's fine. He's just having a bad day. Mm. He's a bit tired. And I'd think, how can he be tired? He's been lying on the couch all day, you know? So there were things that were starting to not make sense. And then when I started to hear Dad talking in ways that were really inappropriate, I then realised that there was definitely yeah. something wrong and that there was a, a cognitive impairment. I, I find it again very interesting that um, that you mentioned there that your mother was protecting your father. Uh, that's again something that my mother and Daniel's mother both said. Uh, again, without speaking to each other, they both said that the that the partner of the of the of the of the, the sufferer of dementia. Seeks yeah. to protect that person, and also seeks to protect their children. So, in this in this case, it was mm. it was my mother and and me and my brother. My grandfather completely dismissed the idea that my grandmother was suffering from dementia early on. He dismissed yeah. the idea that she needed care that that he needed help caring for her. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, so dismissive. And I mean, again, we spoke about this last week, but I, I think we can acknowledge that that's partly a generational thing, um, but. But how can we? How can we? For well, first of all, how can we get better at detecting dementia? And what? When? What are your? What? What do you? What do you know in that space? And 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 how can we? Uh, how can we communicate better as family units to try and prepare for something like dementia, which can sort of come out of nowhere? Yeah, and I think um, we've got to be more courageous in our willingness to approach these conversations with our parents. And, you know, I wasn't 
at the time, I took mum's word for it. I thought, oh, well, look, you know, she knows. My mum was a nurse. And I thought, you know, if there was anything seriously wrong, she would tell us. But she didn't. You know, she was protecting dad's dignity. And it is absolutely a generational thing. Mm. And, you know, and I think there was a part of that we didn't, you know, we, we were in denial. We didn't want, we didn't want that to be the case. Mm. You know, we wanted dad to be okay. And despite what we could see in front of us, it was that, you know, wanting to deny it. But I think being better informed makes such a difference when we now start to have these conversations more publicly and people start, are starting to understand that, you know, what dementia is and we're starting to dispel many of the myths about dementia and it's actually a disease of the brain and, you know, it's not something that people can control and it's, um, you know, it's something that we need to be better informed about. Mm. So, you know, I think dispelling the myths, being better informed and one of the things that we started at Dementia Australia is the Dementia Friendly Communities Program and the Dementia Friends Program and we've now got almost 10,000 people signed up just in the last few weeks and what that starts to do is it starts to shift the perspective of the community and once, if we can get to 1% of the population, we will then have a critical mass and then it will just, it will take on a life of its own but right now we're building momentum building momentum around knowledge about dispelling the myths and raising awareness and making sure that dementia is well known and the impacts of it are well known and it's not just the people that live with it that are impacted it's carers and families and the impacts of some carers and families can be truly devastating and especially when they don't have support and then of course there's the other area of people who live on their own who don't have carers and family mm. And, how, you know, so connecting them to services is really important so that they are well supported and so that, you know, other, that their wishes are known. Mm. And the earlier that we can get people diagnosed, the earlier we can access services mm. and we can start to do things that are restorative in nature and really work to support them to stay well for longer. Mm. Um, you're on What Happens If on Joy 94.9. I am speaking with Marie McCabe from Dementia Australia. Thank you so much for joining us, Marie. I, I find it, um, uh, interesting what you talk about in terms of support. You know, I know, again, just speaking from lived experience here, my mother, I mean, the, the, the amount that has fallen on her plate from the moment that my grandmother was sort of, I suppose, officially um, uh, uh, diagnosed and officially yeah. steps were taken to, I guess it sounds awful, but to relieve her of her own responsibilities for herself so that others yeah. were tasked with making those decisions. And we, unfortunately, within my family unit, we have a disagreement between my mother and her brother around the care of my grandmother. And so... I found I find this idea of support interesting because it seems like if there are, in terms of a family unit, it seems like if there are any cracks in that support or any significant disagreements, that the person who suffers is is the is the dementia patient is yeah, the, the is, is, is the, the, is the dementia, recipient yeah. of the care. How, how do you think about yeah. how we can educate family units on on getting good education and preparation when they suddenly find themselves in such a situation? 
It's a really great point, Jan. And one of the things about families is despite the fact that they may have different views, the one thing they all share is that they want the best for their their loved one. Mm. And if we can get people to that place, and at Dementia Australia, we work with families regularly dealing with just this issue. And in my family, there are six of us. I'm the eldest of six. So right. we, had, mm-hmm. we had a lot of different views yeah, yeah, about yeah. what we thought was best for Dad. And right. we had some very heated very heated discussions. But, it, you know, when in the middle, in the midst of those, you know, those discussions and sometimes arguments was we all want what's best for Dad. And when we got to that, we could then start to, you know, figure things out. Mm-hmm. And one, you know, and we involved Dad in some of the, you know, this, you know, Dad, we're talking about, you know, how to best support you. What is it that you need? Now, there were times when he was very clear about what he wanted and needed, and there were times when he just wasn't up for that conversation mm-hmm. and when he didn't want to have it. And, you know, we just, we had to pace some of these things and we had to research things and come, and we didn't know about Dementia Australia at that point. So it was about figuring out and doing some some of our own research, consulting GP, you know, talking to the local aged care facility Mm. and finding out what was available and then figuring it out. And it can be really difficult, but, you know, do get help. And often having a session with a third party is really helpful Mm. because they can listen objectively and, you know, they can point to that what and nobody would be as heated as we are or passionate as we are if we didn't love the, the person so much. So, mm-hmm. you know, having a third party involved is often a really good way of getting to the crux of the matter and also coming up with a solution that works. Mm. We uh, uh, we found recently that um, it's been very difficult to accept. So, for example... Um, uh, unfortunately, the, the guardian for my grandmother is now the Office of the Public Advocate. And I say unfortunately because it, yeah. as, a, as far as third parties go, we've got my mother and my uncle who are having to, I suppose, the filter for everything is is the third party and, and the OPA is, is subject to all their own kinds of restrictions and obviously it's, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the legalities around around that are are suitably intense <laughs> might be the best word I can yeah. use to describe it. But what we've, I, I suppose my personal lesson is that, is that I, I just always has felt like if, if the power to, to at least attempt to speak on grandma, on my grandma's behalf between us as a family unit, if that could be maintained, then family should strive for that 100%. And then perhaps, as you suggest, um, search for third parties that can mediate. Do, do, do you know of, yeah. of whether Dementia Australia or, or some, some partner bodies help with mediation? Absolutely, and Dementia Australia absolutely does that yarn, and it's a really important part of our work. And, you know, and I think it's fantastic that you're willing to share with listeners about your family's experience because there'll be many families out there that are in that position Mm. and you know thank goodness that the office of the public advocate is there to do that because in the absence of being able to get agreement 
you know, what who suffers is the person living with dementia, and mm. that's not that's not the intention. And we need somebody who can objectively advocate on their behalf and make sure that their wishes are honoured. And knowing those wishes early is really important to ensure that they can be honoured. Mm. As as from the perspective of Dementia Australia, what what do you think is the is the best way for for a third party for an, for an advocate to to attempt to determine, I spoke about this earlier in the show, but what's the best way to sort of attempt to determine what those wishes are? How, how do we how do we come to that to that knowledge? Um, perhaps, perhaps you can well, use your own experience. Yeah, well, the first thing to do is to have the conversation mm. and say, look, you know, this is this is the diagnosis dementia, and look, you know, when people get a, de- a diagnosis of dementia, they are in many different spaces, and it's not that you have to have this conversation in the first you know, the first week. But in the coming, you know, it is important to have it while the person is still well and they're well enough to communicate what they want. And the conversation I had with Dad and um, I said to Dad one day, I said, look, Dad, I need to have a daughter-father conversation with you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Dad never lost was his sense of humour, thank goodness, because it made some of these difficult conversations much easier. Mm. And he said to me, and he said, Marie, I should have had this conversation with you. I should have been a better man and raised Mm. this. And I said, no, Dad. I said, there's no right time to have this conversation. I said, but I want to know what you want so that... I can make sure that your wishes are honoured, mm. and you know we all our, t- our time will come for all of us. And when yours comes, I want to make sure that whatever you want is what you get. And he was really amazing. And you know, so I asked very direct questions, and he um, and he told me. And as and I'm so grateful for that yarn because oh, about six months later, my dad went into hospital, and fortunately, I was there with him. And when the nurse came in to admit Dad, he was he his his dementia was quite advanced then, and everything she asked, he would say yes, love. And one of the things she said is, "Do you want to be resuscitated?" And he said, "Yes, love." And when and I thought, no, that's not what he's told me. And mm-hmm. when she left, I said to Dad, "I said, Dad, do you know what the nurse meant when she said?" Do you want to be resuscitated? He said, I have no idea. Mm. And I said, well, what that means is they will um, put, a, put a, you know, paddles on your chest. They may give you injections. They may pound on your chest. They'll do all sorts of things to bring you back to life. Mm. He said, over my dead body. I said, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's fantastic. So, I, I think it's a good yeah. point. You know, uh, uh, I, I know that Daniel has a, fan, a, a hilarious story about, about the the final moments of his poppy's life, and I, I can't help but think that I mean we have this we have a wonderful sense of humour in Australia. I think it's fantastic. It's one of my favourite things, and I, I wonder what the role of what the role of humour is in this. You know what 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 what, what oh, little wins can we have along the way? Sense, you know, you've got to maintain a sense of humour, Yarn, mm. and there are some very you know there's some fabulously funny stories that we share as a family when, you know, during during Dad's life, because he always had a great sense of humour, but some very funny ones when he had dementia as well. And he would laugh at them. And when he was first admitted into care, I went to, I walked in one morning and he's got this massive television in, at the end of his bed. And I said to him, where did the television come from? And he looked at me and he said, to be quite honest, he said, I can't remember. I said, good. And he said, why? I said, because when I take it, you won't remember who took it. 
And he just thought that was hilarious. And he, you know, so we used a lot of humour with Dad to, you know, just to make sure that he was, I don't know, to keep him involved and to keep things as normal as possible. Mm. Well, Marie, thank you so much for joining us on this program. It means a lot to me as someone who's um, closely connected to dementia and um, the experience of that in my family. And um, thank you for sharing your story. And uh, can you maybe just to finish off, let people know where where they can go to um, get more information from Dementia Australia? Absolutely. And if you call the National Dementia Helpline on 1800 100 500 or go to dementia.org.au and we have a website that is absolutely rich with resources and information. And, you know, Jan, thank you very much for raising this topic and sharing your story because it's so incredibly important that people are aware of where to go, what to do and you know, this is such a human experience and we want to ensure that people get the best possible quality of care and have the best possible quality of life. Thank you so much, Marie. Thanks so much, Jan. Bye now. Bye. Well, 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 you are listening to What Happens If on Joy 94.9. Here we are. We are doing a What Happens If follow-up on dementia. Following along from last week where you're all listening, you're all listening in, I know you were, where Daniel and I did a look into what happens if I become a carer. Now, earlier on, I did a little bit of intro into the show, and if you were listening again, you'd know, but I'm going to be speaking right now with Dr. Linda Barkley, who's joining us on the line. She's from the philosophy department at Monash University. Um, Give her a round of of applause, go for it. Um, And uh, this is Dr. Linda Barkley. Thank you so much for joining us on the line, Dr. Linda. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. And how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, So I decided to do a bit more of a follow-up on the carer thing into dementia. And I've mentioned this before, but for folks who have just tuned in, I have a grandmother who has severe dementia and it's gotten me thinking a lot about how we can go about uh, attempting to understand someone's wishes when they are no longer sound of mind, and that's the sort of the terminology that they use. And you've written a lot about dignity and disability, and I'm wondering how you think about the relationship between dignity and disability, first of all, and how that might apply into the life of a carer who's attempting to develop, uh, I suppose, a, a, a full-rounded view of what that person the, the, who is not sound of mind may want in their life in an ongoing way. The kind of ethical issues raised by dementia have in fact been discussed by philosophers for the last 20 years or so mm. because they raise really tricky issues about who we take a person with dementia to be. Um, mm. So... Do we, when we're caring for someone with really advanced dementia, are we trying our best to keep them happy and content and avoid distress? Or are we trying to honour the person that they always took themselves to be before they got dementia? So to give you a simple example, if some family members, for example, have talked about their discomfort at seeing 
um, a loved one with very advanced dementia enrolled in activities that they seem to enjoy um, that help keep them healthy and active and um, engaged, but which they know their parents, for example, or their loved ones or their grandparents would have hated um, before they got dementia. So it raises questions for a lot of carers and family members as to how do they respect the dignity of their loved one? Do they try and keep them as the kind of person they always were and so not enrol them in yoga lessons or mm. music lessons or, you know, music activities or do they just try to keep them happy and avoid distress? And, you know, different families um, take different different kind of takes on this. I mean, some people are really affronted when they're very, um, when their loved ones with severe dementia are enrolled in activities that they think are demeaning or childlike. Mm. You know, they will say something like, look, my grandma was a nuclear physicist <laughs> and she was yeah. a very, very proud woman. Yeah. And what does she know, care she about? Would... Guess who? Yeah, she'd be horrified. <laughs> yeah, she right, would have yeah. been horrified to yeah, see yeah. that, you know, this is what things have become. Mm. Whereas other family members say, well, look, this person is a different person now. And now they're really happy doing these music, music, you know, activities. So that's all that matters, keeping them happy. Um, I, yeah, look, I just think that people have really different views on this and I'm not sure that there's any hard and fast um, answers. In a sense, there's a bit of loss either way. We don't want our loved ones to be distressed, but we can mourn the fact that the person they were is also no longer there. Um, mm. So oh, either yeah. way, there's no clear answer to, to what best protects their dignity, I mm. think. Is, there's no there's no scooting over the fact that there's some loss when someone close to you and there's some threshold there. I remember the moment when I went and visited my grandma and it just seemed like... She'd gone down so many steps on the staircase that I—that uh, was it. I, I, she wasn't who I remembered her to be, you know. And I, I think that's something that um, a lot of people that's go right. through. Yeah. Uh, I wonder—it's something that I've been thinking about a lot um, in, in my life, which is this idea that when someone's got dementia, there's obviously the memory. The memory loss, or the memory uh, skewing, or the or the mm. or the thinking that someone is somebody else. Uh, so there's just this sort of confusion and um, and misappropriation going on. And mm. sometimes, if you know, if my grandmother is visited, she perhaps doesn't remember it half an hour later, but will remember it, let's say, ten days later, whatever it might be. I'm sure it's different for every patient um and i wonder how you think about the idea of uh how the person with dementia is living moment to moment and is there a it it feels like there's an inequality in how we value moments for people with disabilities does that is that mm. ringing true in any way am i off am i off the mark there so whether we um, think some moments are more valuable than others in their lives? Yeah, wh whether the, the, the meaning of moments changes intrinsically, the value of those moments mm. changes intrinsically because they are forgotten shortly after. 
Yeah, no, look, I think that's a really good question. And both because they're forgotten shortly after. So so it doesn't mean as much if it's just so transitory. Mm. Um, but also because so much of our lives and the value of the moment in our lives contributes towards some kind of forward-looking project, mm. right? So we... And, and a, self, we, a self-made narrative. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So human beings are not actually particularly good, despite all the ways in which self-help books tell us to be better at it. We're not, we're <laughs> yeah. not actually particularly good at just simply enjoying the moment, uh, yeah, right? The moment's yeah. always part of some bigger project mm. or it's part of some bigger narrative or it's part of some, you know, series of interconnected mm. relationships or something. It's, mm. it's always plotted somewhere on a bigger picture. Mm. Um, and I think that I think that sometimes for people with very advanced dementia, it is just about trying to make um, the little moments count. But Mm. how do we do that? Those of us who don't have dementia do that without, again, feeling this kind of sense of loss that, well, that's all it is. It's just a little moment. Mm. (laughs) It's not actually helping to improve the overall quality of this person's life necessarily or... It's not actually helping to, you know, on some path of progress in some way. It's just a moment and mm. it'll be gone. Um, and Gosh, I that's think, almost more difficult to take when you are sound of mind. <laughs> well, I, but I think you know that's what I mean? Exactly it's, right. yeah, yeah, it's a hard reality yeah. to face. It's very hard for those of us without dementia to step into the shoes of somebody who does have dementia. It's just mm. very, very difficult mm. because it's it's not just the cognitive impairments. It's a it, it can be such a such a way of living that's so at odds with what it means for most of us to be human beings, which is that we construct our lives in these longer narratives uh, with complex connections to other people, um, with complex understandings of who's alive, who's dead, who's present, who's not. Mm. And when you take all of that away, um, it becomes very complex for us who don't have dementia to know what the right thing to do is for someone who does. Um, So another really good example is just the ethics of deception. So usually we take honesty to be extremely important in our interpersonal relationships. Mm. But what if a loved one with dementia keeps asking about her partner, for example, who died 10 years ago, Mm. um, and she just keeps forgetting? that her Mm. partner died. And so she keeps asking again and again, you know, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so? And again, family members or loved ones have really, really different views. Some are just kind of really stuck on this idea that you have to be honest. And so you have to keep telling your loved one with dementia over and over again that their partner actually died, Mm. right? Mm. Whereas other people say that's cruel, Mm. right? You... What you can do is just say, oh, you know, they're down at the supermarket and then you hope that they'll quickly forget, which they often do, right? Mm. So, and then 10 minutes later they might ask again and again you say they're down at the supermarket. Mm. Um, The question is, because so again, you're thinking, well, the most important thing is not to distress them, right? And that means we have to suspend some of these normal, you know, standard ethical relationships like honesty, um, and people have, <laughs> some people have a very hard time doing that and we don't agree about whether that's always the right thing to do. Mm. 
In well, the um, Dr. Linda, Go we on. might take a break there and um, we'll come back in a moment. moment. Um, you are listening to What Happens If on Joy. We're speaking with Dr. Linda Barclay from Monash University. You are listening to What Happens If on Joy 94.9. I'm still speaking with Dr. Linda Barclay from the Philosophy Department at Monash University. Now, Dr. Linda, we left off there and I wanted to move on now to something that I found interesting when I was sitting watching the uh, the Four Corners double super duper special on aged care and I was sitting there with my with my grandfather watching it, which was interesting in and of itself. But I found it interesting that I kept hearing hearing this word justice come up, especially from mm. the um, the carers uh, or, or the, the sons or daughters uh, of those who were receiving care and were abused, allegedly, mm. or et cetera, mm. et cetera. This word justice kept coming up. And I wonder, I wonder where justice fits into this idea of... Um, representing someone who is cognitively impaired. Mm, yeah. So I think that um, I think we're probably just scratching the surface mm. of the amount of abuse that's going on um, in places like nursing homes. And, you know, a really one really simple way to look at it is to say, well, things are so bad because it's just a kind of economic injustice. There's not enough money spent <laughs> on high quality nursing homes. There's not enough money spent on regulation. There's not enough money spent on high quality staff. Um, and that, of course, is all partly true. But I doubt that that's the whole story about justice. Mm. Um, I think one of the reasons there's not enough money spent and why in any case there would be abuse even if there was enough money spent is because there is so much stigma attached to being old um, and very frail and certainly having cognitive impairment. So, and mm. having all three of those traits is a triple triple whammy in terms of stigma. Mm. I mean, we talk that way ourselves, right? We ourselves say um, we couldn't think of anything worse than losing our marbles. Yeah, or yeah. Up and, kill me before yeah. that happens. You hear people say. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's, so that's we, about as bad. Know, as we good. talk. We talk in this stigmatized way ourselves about yeah, about right. um, mm. old age and and dementia and frailty. Now, it really course, is, I've never know, thought of it that way. It really is negative talk, isn't it? It's totally negative yeah. talk. And you, if, you think about, uh, if you think about comparing that to other ways in which people are stigmatised, it would raise eyebrows. Right? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> um, so on, but having said that, you know, there's no point sticking your, your head in the sand. It's, it can, in fact, just be very, very difficult to mm. have some disabilities. It, it can be a genuine loss both for the person themselves and others around them to become cognitively impaired. So I, I don't want to deny that. But to talk about it and to treat it as a fate worse than death is also our our way of giving voice to our cultural obsession and, and valuing of youth and physical robustness and beauty and and um, all of the things associated with that. So, so, so I think justice <laughs> for people who are... Uh, are going to be very old and frail and end up in some form or another of care ultimately will never really be perfect until we learn to stop talking so negatively mm. about old age and the declines that are often associated with it. Mm. Um, 
you know, they say in, in some countries and in some cultures, old people are lauded and put up on a pedestal. I don't really know if that's true or in what exact sense it's true. Right. But I, but I do think we need to stop trash-talking it as, as a face, fate worse worse than death. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think it would be a stretch to say, and, I, and I'm in the same boat as you, I, I couldn't, um, you know, confirm it either way, but it wouldn't feel like a stretch for me to say that the word elder has a very different meaning in some cultures than it does others. And I, I, I'll stick my neck out and yeah. say that our connotation around elder ain't that great. No, it's not. We have the word elderly. So um, yeah. I used to work... Um, for older people in a in a pension um, non-government organisation and they would never use the word elderly. They just mm. refer to themselves as older people because mm. the, world, the word elderly for us is a kind of... It refers to a character, various character traits of being frail and incompetent. Yep. Um, Dotty. And yep. Yeah, mm, so mm. Um, it's not it's not even a word. Having been in that environment in the past, that I would even use. I would yeah, just right. Say older pe- older well, that, that, people. That's interesting. Or, mm. Yeah. So so yeah. So I, there there are whenever you see abuse, nearly in every case where you see people subject to violence or abuse, there's nearly always some kind of stigma yeah. um, that lies behind it that makes it so easy for otherwise good and decent people to become abusive. Mm, that's that's very interesting. Uh, uh, you know, it's so interesting to speak with you. And I spoke with um, the CEO of Dementia Australia, Marie McCabe, um, earlier today. And um, it just strikes me as someone who I'm living within a family unit where it certainly looks like there's abuse going on, and yet, and yet it is it is incredibly difficult to to pierce through all the moving parts. And I wonder how. I wonder how um, how you think about um, third parties like um, care, uh, uh, aged care facilities. Um, you know, the Office of the Public Advocate is one that we are dealing with in my family right now. And I mean, you spoke about economic injustice. I mean, I, I, I'm new to all this, you know, but I mean, mm. it, they just strike me as a severely underfunded body um yeah. uh, that yeah, are just yeah. completely incapable of acting properly as a guardian for somebody and so there's that but um uh, i suppose i would like to get your thoughts on i mean it's one thing to to um to say to um, a family member of someone with with a disability okay you are now tasked to make decisions for that person but it's another thing to then go oh you're all out of the picture none of you can agree now there's another third party doesn't even know your grandma and now they're going to make decisions for her. How do you yeah. think about, I guess, um, general, or I guess, uh, you know, good standard scientific knowledge about disabilities and about uh, philosophy and about um, caring yeah. for people? And can that even closely translate to caring for someone who you don't even know? Yeah. Look, I, I think it really underlines the the, the reason why people go on and on about advanced care planning so much. So mm. you, you're right, what happens if a person becomes um, unable for whatever range of reasons to make decisions for themselves and then the family can't agree. Mm. So the, the whole idea of guardianship and, and in advance planning power of attorney is so important mm. because actually what that effectively does is give that person themselves the decision about 
who they trust most to mm. make decisions on their behalf when they can't. Mm. 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 Um, so that earlier families have these conversations so that, in other words, your grandmother gets to choose. You know, I want my grandson to do it. Mm. He is the one that I most trust to, yeah. to, to, to make decisions yeah. on my behalf. Done. And she made that decision when she still could. And she made yeah. that decision when she still could. Mm. Um, and... Be, yeah, and because often and often when families disagree, it's not because necessarily someone is, you know, evil or has plans to get their hands on Granny's money or no, anything yeah, like yeah. that. It's <laughs> no. simply because they. It it is often just very unclear what is best for a person who's no longer the person that they once once were. Yeah. Um, mm. So. But on the other hand, to be fair to public policy makers, if a family can't agree um, and despite everyone's best attempts to come to an agreement, uh, you know, I'm not really sure that there's any other way for a public authority to go than to listen to everyone's perspective and then ultimately come in and make a decision. Yeah. Um, because it's also not fair for that person who can't make decisions for themselves if nothing gets done because mm. of all the squabbling. <laughs> no, right. Like, yeah, they're just yeah. as bad as each other, aren't they? I mean, you can talk about the APA being underfunded and slow, but that's just as it's just as bad as if the family is is um, completely dysfunctional. That's right, uh, they're, they're and sometimes the dysfunctional family doesn't even come to the attention mm. of of, the, of groups like the Office for the Public Advocates. You know, they, yeah. um, the older person might just be neglected and abused within a kind of closed and private family environment where there's disagreement, mm. um, and then you know, totally unprotected. Mm. Well, um, Dr. Linda, I, as you said just before, I I think we've only scratched the surface, and it's been a um, a uh, fantastic conversation with you. I appreciate you having this dialogue with me and um, coming on and speaking about something that's very close to my family and that's been swirling around in my brain. Um, can Very quickly, can you just maybe um, let us know where people can go to find your work? Uh, sure. So I have a website, um, and if you just Google Linda Barclay at Monash, it will direct you to my website with all of my contact details. Wonderful. Dr. Linda Barkley from the Philosophy Department at Monash University. Um, thank you so much again, and I'll speak to you next time. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, this is What Happens If on Joy. This has been Jan de Pietro, and this is What Has Happened If We Follow Up on Dementia. And we did. You and all you lucky ducks. And me. And I spoke with Marie McCabe, the CEO of Dementia Australia. And I spoke with Dr. Linda Barclay from the philosophy department at Monash University. We're learning people. We're getting to know about what's important to us in our lives, to other people, understanding, connection, buzzwords. <laughs> you can just pop in any buzzword you like. There's heaps of buzzwords you can use. Engagement, policy, respect. Just buzz it up. Buzzy buzz buzz buzz. Um, I've found it to be a wonderful exercise for me and I hope that it was good for you as well. <laughs> that was just a, a really nerdy way of saying, was it as good for you as it was for me? <laughs> oh, there I go again, laughing, just me, in a room with the word joy just everywhere around me. <laughs> um, 
Well, I've enjoyed your company, invisible friends. And then some guitar happened. And it's like, well, what do you got to say about it, cat? It's got some beautiful lyrics. It's not time to make a change. Hmm? Well, maybe cat, Just depending on your life. circumstances. Take it easy. All right, I got to get the train. <laughs> Ish, I'm thirty. So now he's blaming me. We'll find a girl. Join me next week. Down. Because if you, want, you know, you if you're free. Or download the podcast. I am old. Chuck it a five-star rating. Share it with your friends and family. Who knows what could happen? This could get relatively bigger than it is. And like I said at the moment, it's just me in a room. Um, Daniel, love you very much. I hope you're having a great time with your new job. And this was, again, for your poppy and for my grandma Mary. But your dreams may not How can I try to explain When I do, he turns away again It's always been the same Same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen now a way and I know that I have to go away I know I have to go for listening to another joy podcast brought to you by australia's lgbtqia plus community media organization joy help us keep joy on air head to joy.org.au joy a diverse sound for a diverse community